Hi again, everyone. This is Mark Movsesian. I'm the co-director of the Center for Law and Religion at St. John's, and I'm joined again by my friend and colleague, Mark DiGirolami, who's the other co-director of the Center, for another episode of Legal Spirits, which is our podcast series on cases and issues in law and religion. You can find our past episodes archived on our website, which is lawandreligionforum, one word, dot O-R-G, and also on streaming platforms like Apple iTunes and, and Android and Spotify, and a whole host of other streaming platforms that our student editors have set up for us that Mark and I know nothing about. But you can find us in a lot of different places. Uh, well, today we have a couple of guests with us, and we're going to tackle a subject which is, well, it's not exactly related to law and religion, but I do think that there are, it's certainly related to law schools, and I think it's also related to religion, as we'll see as we go through this uh, topic today. Um, we're talking about the future of education, and specifically the future of classical legal education, whether it's truly gone, whether it's going to make a comeback, whether that would be a good thing. And our two guests today are Professor Stephen Smith, who's at the University of San Diego. Uh, he teaches constitutional interpretation. He teaches torts, jurisprudence, and other subjects. He is the Warren Distinguished Professor of Law and the co-executive director of the Institute for Law and Religion, and also the co-executive director of the Institute for Law and Philosophy at USD. And we're also joined by Julia Mahoney, who teaches courses in property, government, finance, constitutional law, and nonprofit organizations. And Julia is the John S. Battle Professor and the Joseph C. Carter Jr. Research Professor of Law at the University of Virginia. And the way this all started is uh, there was an exchange on the Law and Liberty website uh, this summer featuring a lead essay by Steve, which was called a bleak future for legal education. I didn't get the inflection right. There's a question mark at the end of that. Um, and you know, um, and that an essay that that generated uh, responses from a few people, including from Professor Mahoney, who wrote her own essay called "A New Day for Legal Education," also with a question mark at the end of it. And so Mark and I decided we would invite Steve and Julia to join us to share what their essays were about and how they see the future of legal education, and particularly classical legal education, which, as we're going to discover, has a substantial religious component to it. So we're delighted to welcome them both today to Legal Spirits. Welcome, Steve, and welcome, Julia. Thank you. Good to be here. Thank you. Mark, okay, you want to take over? Sure, I'm happy to. And I let me extend my welcome as well. And, and uh, we're really delighted to do this. This is the first time we've had four people on the podcast uh, at one time, and and uh, and I I expect it to be a lively exchange in light of the differences of opinion and and the subject matters that we're going to be discussing. So, Steve, why don't you start out since yours was the lead uh, essay, and just kind of summarize for listeners what the main themes and arguments of the piece um, were about? Because I, I think it's probably fair to say you're not uh, sort of super. Uh, upbeat or sanguine <laughs> on the on the future of of uh, legal education, or, or at least dubious about what its future might look like in light of certain trends that are happening. Yes, uh, that's probably a fair description. I think yes. Um, so, I mean, what happened is that Law and Liberty invited me to write a. They, they have these uh, kind of like symposia programs where they ask someone to write a lead essay and then they ask some people to respond to it. So they asked me to write an essay about the future of legal education. And I assume when they asked me, they knew that they were asking somebody who was sort of near the end of his career with curmudgeonly tendencies and, and, uh, and this sort of thing. But so they got what they asked for, I think, because um, uh, it, 
admittedly, as Julia has pointed out, coincidentally, it is somewhat of a gloomy essay. But I started with three quotations, and they really do set the theme for the essay. So I think I'd just like to mention those quotations. You know, one was from Holmes, and um, Holmes said, I won't read the whole quotation, but he's sort of cautioning against purely practical approaches to law, at least in this quotation. And he says, the remoter and more general aspects of the law are those which give it a universal interest. It is through them that you not only become a great master in your calling, but connect your subject with the universe and catch an echo of the infinite, a glimpse of its unfathomable process, a hint of the universal law. Kind of a grand eloquent statement, especially coming from Holmes. But um, uh, so, so my second quotation is in some ways the most important of the three. It kind of underlies everything I think I'm saying here. So I, it's not that long. So I think I will try to just read that quote. And that's from G.K. Chesterton. Chesterton says, uh, there are some people, and I am one of them, who think that the most practical and important thing about a man is still his view of the universe. We think that for a landlady considering a lodger, it is important to know his income, but still more important to know his philosophy. We think that for a general about to fight an enemy, it is important to know the enemy's numbers, but still more important to know the enemy's philosophy. We think the question is not whether the theory of the cosmos affects matter, but whether in the long run anything else affects them. So, And my last quote was from the book of Proverbs, where there is no vision, the people perish. So in line with those quotes, um, I say in the essay that through much of Western history, law was grounded in what's sometimes called the classical legal tradition. And the picture of the universe here or the underlying philosophy is one that sees the universe as kind of created by God according to a, a, a a providential order and laws grounded in that order and in some ways reflects it and gets its validity from that order. And I mean, this is something that was said by many people, um, um, Fortescue and Matthew Hale and, and Cook and Blackstone. Um, and a recent book by Stuart Banner argues that through much of the well, much of the 19th century, going back into the 18th century, American lawyers and judges routinely sort of invoke natural law and, and thought of law to, to some extent in these sorts of terms. Um, so under that kind of a view of law, I think it would be right to say with Holmes, even though he probably didn't believe that at all, but, you know, with Holmes that studying law and practicing law was a way of connecting with the infinite, with the universe, because law was a reflection of that. Then I think in the 20th century, and obviously I'm painting with a really broad brush here, you know, these things are much more complicated than we can do here in a few minutes. But the picture of the universe changes, I think, significantly to where the, um, the world is, you know, in the human world, human beings evolved animals pursuing their self-interest, you know, with certain evolved capacities for rationality. Um, and one of the legal developments, probably the most important one uh, that goes out of that picture in the 20th century is the sort of law and policy idea with uh, law and economics being probably the most conspicuous representative of that. But, but the idea is, you know, that we use law to further public policies, to further the human good, to achieve our interests and so on. Um, and that's a big departure, I think, from the classical tradition. But it still resembles it in some ways in that in trying to promote the public interest, seeing that as kind of the center thing or, the, you know, the greatest good for the greatest number, there's some resemblance to the common good that the classical legal tradition reflected. However, that sort of succeeded by another phase in which something like critical legal studies is at the center uh, of this sort of movement. And I think that's grounded basically in the same view of the universe, to borrow the phrase from Chesterton, but it sees um, 
sees all of this in bleaker terms as, you know, human beings struggling for power. You know, the life consists of a struggle for power. And law and legal reasoning are basically uh, instruments that are used in the struggle for power. Um, that's seen as kind of subversive and skeptical movement. I sort of present, I think, a little more favorable picture than a lot of conservatives, at least, would take of that, because I see that as, uh, in some ways, not the antithesis of the law and policy view, but as kind of its natural culmination, you know, if uh, based on that view of the universe, as people just, you know, pursuing their interests. It kind of leads to that, I think. And and I think that the crits, if we can call them that, you know, in the 80s and 90s and so forth, were uh, raising some important questions. And I, I, this is kind of where I started my law career. And I think I look back, as I say, you know, with some fondness to those times, because I think the legal academy was very interesting, you know, in those days. But the problem with the critical or cynical sort of philosophy, sees everything as a power struggle, is that if it's not embedded in some larger view, like it was, uh, you might, could be, let's say, in the classical legal tradition, it tends to become subversive of real intellectual activity. I mean, if uh, if reasoning and so forth are really just tools in a power struggle, that tends to de- delegitimate them. And we get to a point where it's um, more just a matter of, are you speaking as a privileged person, in which case your views are inherently suspect, or as an oppressed person, in which case your views are, you know, presumptively valid or entitled to respect. And that's not, I think, good for the intellectual life of the academy. So that's kind of the path that I tried to trace in that first part of the essay, at least. Okay, great. Thanks, Steve, for that uh, summary. We're going to have lots of questions for you, but I want to give uh, Julia a chance to, again, do this kind of a summary of your responsive piece, which uh, I think is you know, Steve didn't talk about the sort of gloomy future that he predicts toward the end of that essay, but but um, but I think that's kind of a little bit where your but he sort of suggested it. I think in some of the last the last uh, uh, comments that he that he made. But your piece, I think, is more 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 positive about the future. Can you just sort of explain or give give listeners a a sense of what you wrote? For sure, uh, it's an honor to be here, and I very much admire Steve's work and his essay. And I learned from Steve when he was visiting at the University of Virginia School of Law some years ago, I learned from Steve that the classical legal tradition is inescapable. And I think that Steve has put this very um, extremely well in his book, Law's Quandary. And so when I read Steve's essay, it made me think that this is interesting because I was seeing something quite different from Steve. He and I agree about, I think, um, law and economics and critical legal studies and how they offer a kind of grim utilitarian slash laws about power vision and that that's not enough to nourish people's souls. Uh, But what I see in the last few years are an awful lot of glimmerings of light. And so I chose my epigraph from Arthur Hugh Clough and not by Eastern windows only. When daylight comes, comes in the light. In front, the sun climbs slow. How slowly? But westward, look, the land is bright. So I'm not sure that the land is actually bright yet, but what I have been seeing for the last 15 years are a lot of different sources of light that don't necessarily go under the banner of the classical legal tradition, but which are very seriously engaging with the classical legal tradition. That includes an enormous amount of the work done in law and religion programs, including, I think, your own. 
I see a lot of curricular innovations where I am seeing, including some of the work that the two Marks, I believe, are doing, where uh, sources of the classical legal tradition are read seriously. There is an appetite for students for things um, along these lines. Uh, Adrian Vermeule's book, uh, which I know has ruffled some feathers, uh, Adrian Vermeule certainly, um, I think, uh, is quite happy to do so, but, but the fact that it struck such a nerve, even though it is by Adrian Vermeule's own admission, much more of a preliminary sketch than a sustained argument, simply saying these ideas of the classical legal tradition are really, really important and aren't actually going away anytime soon, that was enough to vault common good constitutionalism to the very front of the conversation. And so, well, I don't know how things will turn out. I think there are reasons for optimism, and I'm a great believer in attempting to build on what is strong. And I think the classical legal tradition is not gone. It is strong, and we should think about ways to, in effect, make it even stronger. Well, thanks very much to you both for those uh, summaries. And obviously, this raises a lot, lot of different kinds of questions. Uh, Julia, thank you for your kind comments. We, we do what we can here at the center and, and uh, try to hold up our, our little flag uh, um, in, in this uh, corner of academia. But maybe I'll start with a question for Steve. And, and that is, um, I wonder whether the um, both the kind of law and policy, just as a kind of genealogical um, study, the law and policy and the critical legal studies, you say that they're continuous. And I was trying to think of um, continuous, but different, right? One was trying to do one thing and another was another thing. The critical legal studies was sort of the fulfillment in, in a certain way of the law and policy movement. And I was trying to think of a way to sort of to, to describe the attitude or the view that uh, was so corrosive of the natural law view in a kind of a unified way. And, and I sort of came up with something like, um, you know, a, a view that never presents anything sort of beautiful or moving or worth giving your life for or something like that with respect to the legal profession. And everything is kind of approached um, either ironically or in the case of CLS, destructively, right? That, that uh, you know, the, the object is to kind of knock down and destroy. And so then the result is that all law is just a kind of a pragmatic uh, activity, right? Mm -hmm. um, that it's just about, you know, what works or what's for you. So I wonder if, if that makes sense to you just as a kind of a, as a description of, of the alternative uh, what what unifies the alternative to the classical law view? And again, and then the last little bit is, uh, why has that view had such power and success? Because even if Julie is right that there are some glimmerings and so on, I hope that she's right, they're just glimmerings, right? There's our, it's just our little center or a book here or there that's kind of like popping up and so on. But it's by far the, the less dominant stream. Yeah, so I think... I largely would agree with your description of, you know, what the evolution has been, I think. And, but the question about why this has happened is such a big question that since I'm supposed to, you know, this is a limited time, so, you know, shouldn't expand it. Uh, I don't know. There are lots of aspects of that. And I mean, I've, I've always been one who sort of looks at things from a, 
not a 30,000 foot level, but almost like a hundred thousand foot level or something, you know? And, and so a question like that makes me think of Alistair McIntyre and going back even more Peter M. Sorokin, you know, seeing, you know, really like centuries long developments in play here. They're always, of course, more immediate cause and, you know, little causes, but I see those as more like reflections of a large current of things. So I see this as a development of <laughs> sometimes, you know, jokingly people say, well, it all just, we owe it. The, the problem is all to be blamed on William of Ockham or something. You know, I mean, with the, with the nominalists, it was all going to go to hell after that and so forth. And it's just taken a while to evolve. That's a bit of a caricature. But, you know, I do sort of tend to see these things in something like those terms. But that's a little bit hard to explain briefly, I think. So. No, that's fair. And then so one one additional one for Julia, then, because on the on the sort of how to put it, critique of the positive side, right, uh, of things. You know, you say that there are these glimmerings, but you know, aren't they really just that, Julia? Aren't they just sort of, I mean, you could say that they're, they're, they're new lights, but maybe they're just like the old fading lights, right? There's a couple of, couple of people that are still doing this, but they're kind of either oddballs. And by the way, in the main, there's been a lot of, um, there's been a lot of, uh, a lot of people leaving or the, the legal academy because they're, they're just sort of sick and tired about the way things are going, or they don't feel welcome anymore. Or they don't feel like the kinds of things that they're interested in. And many of those things are things involving the classical legal tradition. They simply aren't valued or people don't care about them or they're not wanted any longer. So how do you kind of square your optimism with some of these other not so, not so nice or not so happy trends? Well, two responses. First, I think we are seeing more than glimmerings, in part because we are seeing a generation of young scholars, including people like Joelle Alicia, who are taking natural law seriously. I would also argue that the current burgeoning interest in general law cannot get very far without serious engagement with what we are calling the classical legal tradition. So when I see that Will Bode and Jed Campbell and Steve Sachs are publishing a piece in Stanford Law Review on general law and the 14th Amendment, to me, that is a very important development. No one can say that those scholars in the Stanford Law Review are not mainstream. They are finally, in my view, beginning to grapple with the, what I believe, the sources that I believe must be grappled with to have a full understanding of the 14th Amendment. Second point, you're right, some people are departing. But I think that even those who are departing legal academia are not necessarily quitting legal education. I think it's very important to define legal education broadly and to be creative and understand that there are a lot of ways to teach crucial things in the legal um, tradition that don't necessarily involve law schools. Uh, I think in the next uh, decade or two, I think it would be very useful for us to think very carefully about restructuring legal education including perhaps asking state legislatures to consider not requiring law degrees, JDs, allowing people to train for the bar with other, um, with other uh, ways. So that's the, these are just a couple of the lines along which I'm thinking, and I hope it explains why I'm more optimistic than Steve. Steve, you wanted to jump in? Uh, I'll try to say this really quickly, just a couple points quickly based on what Julia said. First of all, I agree with a lot of what Julia said, I think. And one thing that I really agree with is um, a point she made here and made in her essay, which was that whatever you may think about Adrian Vermeule's book, and I've written a review that's really quite 
critical of the book. Um, the fact that it has generated so much interest, I think, is a hopeful sign in a sense. You know, it does, I think, show at least some kind of sense that what we have now is just not, you know, sufficient and so forth. And so that's a hopeful sign. But on the other side, still, you know, not to be too optimistic, I don't want to be converted to optimism too thoroughly. Um, yeah, the Will Bode and Steve Sachs article and another one in the same vein by uh, Julia's colleague, John Harrison, I think, and some of the other work is, is good. It's very good work and it's interesting. But I don't see those, pe- those people as thinking, oh, I've discovered something that is true about law exactly so much. They're doing historical work, you know, so, you know we can, sort of acknowledging what some of us might have thought was sort of obvious that, you know, we can't really understand the way people were thinking about law at the time of the 14th Amendment unless we realize they were thinking about something like this. And that's a valuable contribution. But in itself, it doesn't give me much reason to think that there's any sort of movement to actually take that seriously for our times. I think the ideas are more powerful than the messengers. I hope so. The fact that uh, I'm not, um, as you can tell, uh, don't think that scrutinizing whether or not uh, someone is uh, identifying as a positivist or not uh, gets us very far. I think Mm -hmm. what matters is that we see, as you say, a lot of quality work that is seriously engaging with sources and traditions. And that's what I'm seeing. So I'd like to jump in here and ask a question of, of both of you. So it seems both of you are talking about the, the possibility of a restoration of some kind of a classical legal tradition. And I think a classical legal tradition, as Steve says, is somehow connected to religion. I mean, to Christianity specifically in, in the Anglo-American legal system, but generally to ideas about transcendence and ultimate reality. And I tend to be a little more, well, frankly, I tend to be a lot more on the pessimistic side with Steve and the optimistic side. And let me just explain why and and get your reactions. It seems to me, look, I'm I'm not a natural law theorist by any means. I, I get quite lost when I start thinking about natural law. But empirically, it seems to me that that having a classical legal system that depends on natural law depends on a cultural consensus. And I think that cultural consensus consensus just doesn't exist. I mean, America is a much more diverse place now than it was 150 years ago. I mean, I'm speaking just empirically now. You know, we don't have a, a community that kind of agrees on basic values. We even disagree what a man is, what a woman is. We can't come to agreement on that. In fact, Steve, it reminds me a bit of your the book that I reviewed about a year ago about uh, the legal fictions that we all rely on, you know, legal fictions depend on people, dis, you know, kind of believing them. And we don't really believe these things anymore, it seems. So, again, not speaking metaphysically, not speaking in terms of a justification that it doesn't depend on what the community thinks. But but just looking around our country today, I don't see that we have a kind of consensus on basic values that's going to make natural law operational any longer. So, so quite apart from what's going on in the legal academy, don't these cultural trends sort of suggest this is just not, this is a non-starter. I, I think probably, Julia, you disagree, but let me let me first hear from Steve and then see what Julia says. Well, you won't be surprised to hear that I largely agree with what you said, Mark, just now. Um, but there is one aspect of that that, I don't know, would be maybe an amendment or at least an addition to what you said, because in law schools, I think it's perfectly fine, acceptable to have people who teach classes, let's say, from an economic perspective. You know, say, I'm going to do a law and economics approach to this subject, whatever. Or 
you know, a feminist or a crit or a, a, or a Marxist or some, you know, Lacanian or, you know, you know, various kinds of perspectives that people use in teaching, um, even though there's nothing like an agreement about those those points of view, but it still seems like it, we treat it as perfectly permissible to at least, you know, people have those views and teach them and, and that's fine. But the classical legal tradition is one that I think it's almost not in most schools. This wouldn't be true at Notre Dame where I used to teach, I think, and it might not be true at St. John's or Catholic U or so forth. But at most schools, I think you just wouldn't have somebody teaching from affirming the classical legal tradition. They might talk about it, you know, but it would just be viewed as unacceptable. So that's uh, just gives me a little bit of pause about the we have no consensus. And so that's why we can't do it idea. It seems like there's a little bit more to it than that. But nonetheless, that might be a sufficient reason for uh, skepticism about whether this is going to go anywhere. Julia, what do you say? I think I see things somewhat differently. It's not so much that I expect there to be a revival of the classical legal tradition in the precise form that reigned in the academy, say, a century or more ago. Rather, I'm thinking that these core ideas of human dignity, human flourishing, do have a universal aspect and that there is an appetite for something that is transcendent, something that offers more than desiccated positivism, law and economics that aims for efficiency without ever being able to adequately define efficiency, and some version of critical legal studies that looks at legal relationships as pretty much solely a matter of power. I think there is more out there and to emphasize the point, the popularity, success of common good constitutionalism has, I think, shown us just how strong an appetite there is. I think it's up to all of us who are interested in these ideas to take the next steps. Mark, did you want to add anything about this? No, maybe just one final question. If there were, if there were one stream or one kind of idea, one kind of scholarship or a book or something like that, 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 that you, that you each see as particularly exciting. I mean, Julia mentioned the work by, by Will and, and Steve, and that's certainly very interesting, but, but just any, any other sort of um, bright lights out there that, that you see that, for example, listeners might go and check out or read or think about, or, or even maybe something in your own work that, that, that you're working on that you want to leave listeners with that, that they should check out just as a chance to plug your own stuff. <laughs> well, do you want me to start? I'm not sure about my answer to that. Um, I, I have to confess that I read less legal scholarship than I did at one time. So it could well be that there's emerging stuff that I'm not totally familiar with. But I think that um, some of these historical more approaches are promising because if they can combine with, as Julia says, a kind of an appetite or a demand for something more transcendent, they could eventuate, you know, in something quite hopeful. Uh, I'll say my own strategy kind of for years has been to think uh, I can't exactly, it wouldn't be effective or accepted at all to just directly advocate certain things. But what, what, I might try to do instead is try to show how certain things make sense on those assumptions and they don't seem to make very much sense on the assumptions that you say you hold and that that might provoke a certain kind of thought about, oh, well, maybe there's something more to that than we have thought. That's a very indirect way to try to, you know, move something a little bit conceivably in that sort of direction. I don't really expect that to happen, but, you know, that, that was 
to me, to my mind, the, the most promising sort of approach to take. So I have a long list for any listeners <laughs> who want to learn more. On that list is Steve Smith's book, Law's Quandary. I would also add the works of Philip Hamburger. In particular, his book is Administrative Law Unlawful, which has a masterful explication of a lot of fundamental ideas concerning due process. Uh, there's also Richard Helmholtz's book, on natural law, which covers not just natural law in court, but also covers natural law in legal education in America and in Europe. Uh, there is Eric Clays, who is about to publish a book on natural property rights that I think is an extraordinary achievement. Anyone interested in natural law, natural rights, and the law of property, which I think should be frankly just about everyone, will enjoy this. Uh, Connor Casey, Adrian Vermeule's sometime co-conspirator, has a lot of work, not just with Adrian, but also on his own. Michael Foran also is looking a lot at human dignity. Uh, the two Marks who are hosting this program. Uh, there's the Traditionalism Rising article that I think is kind of the perfect article at the perfect time. There is work on human dignity uh, that I think has been groundbreaking and that, uh, that I think is, um, is also striking a nerve. So this to me, uh, oh, my own work on a feminist common good constitutionalism, question mark, has also tried to grapple with some of these issues. And May I, I say, Juliet, you can come back anytime. <laughs> well, I'm only, scratching the surface, so I'm only scratching the surface. I could talk for 10 more minutes about things that I think your listeners would find very engaging. I, I, I encourage everyone who is uh, interested in these issues to, ch to, to, to go to Law and Liberty's website uh, at least once a week and just see what else is out there because these ideas are pouring in and they truly are pouring in from a lot of different directions. That's what I mean by points of light. That, that they're, 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 these are sometimes the, the, the scholars and, and, and participants in public debate um, about whom I speak, sometimes they're referring to and they're in dialogue with each other, but often not. Often they're, they're people coming up with similar things at similar times. And to me, that's the hallmark of real intellectual developments. And then, as I mentioned, when I was, I've been watching this for a while, and then along comes common good constitutionalism, and it hits like a bolt of lightning, even though pretty much everyone who reviews it says, well, this is not exactly coet. This is, you know, a lot of interesting ideas. They're kind of buzzing around, but it's not, hasn't yet been developed into something coherent. And, and Adrian Vermeule himself says this in the book, yet it is striking this nerve. And I am very interested in why, and I'm thinking a lot about that, and I hope we all get to continue the conversation. Well, thank you very much, both both Steve and Julia. I think we have to bring you back because there's a lot more in these essays. There's in Steve's essays and Julia's essay, there's a whole other discussion about kind of infantilization of law students today and whether we've become, you know, too too sort of soft and indulgent and self-indulgent, I should say. And there's talk about there's there's discussion of professionalism and what that means and what is the vocation of a professional teacher. And it would be great to have you come back and talk about that at some point in the future. But um, for now, let me just say that I encourage everyone to go to the Law and Liberty site and read these two essays and and uh, make up your own mind about whether you're an optimist or a pessimist about the future of classical legal education. And we'll have both Steve and Julia come back for another talk on some other occasion. Meanwhile, uh, for my friend and colleague, Mark DiGirolami and myself, I want to sign off from this episode of Legal Spirits. 
You can find past episodes archived on our website, lawandreligionforum.org, or also on streaming platforms like Amazon and Android and Spotify. But that's it for now. See you next time.